Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and this is my co-host and team member, Scott Daly. Go ahead, Scott. Bam! Blast! Zap! Podcast! I, I did it, Matt. Good my job. power is so good. Good job. Are you building to something? I am. But the, well, you'll have to wait till the end. Okay. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bill's world of multicolored fire, incredibly disturbing hitman arrangements, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we discuss chapters five and six of Arc Nine Gleaming. It's a battle. Victoria Byron and the major malfunctions fight back against teacher's thralls trying to stop the purple fire lady from escaping. But she does anyway. Then Byron drops Chekhov's hitman on Victoria, all while the group has to decide how it's going to deal with Teacher. Also, there's still brainwashed and stuff, so there's that. Matt, yeah. what did you think of these two chapters? These are these are fun. Um, we we reveal like you like you pointed out um, some long-awaited information, which actually uh, inverted my expectations. But that's just because my expectations were completely wrong. And uh, there, there's a lot of great, fun psychological stuff going on, con- continuing to go on in these chapters, which has been ongoing throughout the entirety of this arc because we have brainwashed Victoria having to think her way around things or, or failing to think her way around the mental compulsion. And that's always fun. We have a lot of um, very, very tense situations within the team that arise from that. So overall, a lot of great scenes, a lot of great moments. Can't wait to get into it. Yeah, it's um, one of the things that I think works best about these recent chapters is we are establishing things and but we're we're letting the tension and the conflict ride and and things are really just building on each other. Right. So we had we had the threat of teacher or we had the threat of goddess rather. And then the goddess mind control happens and we have all the tension between Victoria, Amy, and that builds on, on the mind control. And then we have, Oh, teachers making his move. This is it. This is the time that builds upon that. And then Byron has a clock in front of him because of his really dumb hitman arrangement. And that builds upon that. And it's just like things just keep built. Like the, the stakes are being raised higher and higher. And it's not really because, um, like there's any one threat that is like world conquering, but it's like, it's just all these little threats that are just building on top of each other in a way that things are just getting more and more intense, worse and worse. And there's more and more to do more things to accomplish if our heroes are going to win. So it's like, geez, like it's just tense. Yeah, that's a good point. I couldn't even like sit here and enumerate all of the things that you're supposed to be worried about right now. Like, yeah, we didn't even mention the fact that like two of our main characters who we've had multiple interludes from and care about a lot are like in the prison that's going to be sealed off if things go wrong. So right. Yeah, it's all it's all very like, yeah, there's just many different angles of, of uh, things being messed up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's move on into our community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. So if you'll recall, the discussion question from last week was compare and contrast the different forms of mind control or mental compulsion present in the parahumans universe. Is there one that is clearly worse than the others? What do you think these differing forms have to say about the themes of the story? Okay, so before we get into this, Matt, full disclosure, 
uh, you guys like answered the shit out of this question and your answers were really great. We got like some via email and a bunch on the thread and they're all wonderful. Uh, they're also like the size of a small book each. You guys mm-hmm. wrote a lot. And and to be fair, we asked a long, complicated question, um, but we're, we have a very limited time for the section. We don't like to spend too much time on it. We're going to do our best job to summarize them here. But this is one of those weeks where I really strongly encourage everyone out there to if you if you don't visit the Reddit regularly, go to the Reddit thread. We're actually going to link last week's Reddit thread in the show notes this week because I want you guys to go take the time and read through everyone's responses because they're they're fantastic. And there's just no way we can do these answers any kind of justice in like the 10 minutes that we allot for them. So uh, do that. Yeah, we're going to do our best nonetheless, though. Yeah. So from Tisarwat. Uh, Tisarwat takes the time to define five different types of mind control. First, uh, direct versus indirect. That is whether the mind is actually influenced by the power or the power enables change through an intermediate mechanism. The next is known or unknown. That is whether whether the victim is aware they're being influenced. Um, And then there's also a fifth miscellaneous group uh, or, or mind theft. And uh, they go on to correctly state that the actual ranking of these things is difficult as each individual will be, will be affected differently by different effects. Um, and they, they point out in some ways it parallels the way that different forms of psychological traumas are judged, especially sexual assault. I won't go into that, into that too much because it's a grim discussion, but basically while there might be a legal hierarchy, um, that's not the same as saying that there's a hierarchy of how victims will have felt about it. Any or all could cause serious trauma in totally unforeseen ways. Yeah, I think this was a good response to any attempt to kind of rank um, what m- fucking with someone's head will do, because it's going to be different for each person. Each person responds differently to a different form of mind control based off of their own past and the things that have happened to them. You know, so mm-hmm. um, I think that's a very fair answer. And I yeah. liked I liked this. I liked what they said about how that paralyzed parallels kind of how we approach ranking crime. Yeah, right. And also, I imagine it would depend a lot on the context of like what they were made to do under sure. that mental compulsion. Sure, sure. Yeah. All right. Nameless Servant says uh, that they personally think all the different versions of, of that mentioned are pretty terrifying. But if they had to pick one that was worse than all the others, they say goddess hands down. Even if you're aware of the way she influences you, you won't even think it was a bad thing once it's happened. Unlike every other master power we've seen thus far, her power can basically rewrite your identity, making her, her one of its defining elements. And they go on to kind of talk about what this could say thematically about the story, indicating that each member of team breakthrough has their issue, their own personal issues with control, especially Victoria, of course. But this feeling of powerlessness and and kind of forced relinquishing of control extends beyond just our team. Uh, Nameless says all of the capes have a shared trauma of lost control, thanks to Kepri. Um, But but also the root of the kind of cape non cape conflict, the root this cape, this pair human human conflict comes because of this feeling of of people not having control of their own lives and their own safety, that they're having to give all this up to these superpowered people that have hurt them in the past. And I think that's a very good point. Um, Control, powerlessness. These are things that are central to our protagonists and therefore central to our story. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because I, I think I like misread one of the sentences here f- the first time and it gave me the idea that like every single cape is actually losing a bit of their willpower to their shard because they have something that's exerting 
mild form of mild control at the very uh, of mind control at the very least um and some people have much more dominant shards so yeah. so really every cape is is struggling with a certain a certain kind of mind control i think that would be fair yeah cool uh simiurge breaks the controlling aspect in power into three different kinds heart mind and body so they point out powers like regents blindsides kepri's august princes which intuitively fall under mind control, yet don't fit neatly into either head or heart. And they say that I can vouch from personal experience that being trapped in your own body and not being able to trust your own perceptions are terrifying experiences, but any form of mind control is awful in its own way. Something like goddesses or heartbreakers' powers might be less terrifying in the moment because they don't let you feel terrified, but it hits a different note of fear. Anticipatory dread of having someone reach inside you and rewrite, rewire your very self. And then they go on to indicate that this type of control ties into Ward thematically for a few reasons. First, it communicates that the universe is a materialist one. There's not really any way to overcome any of the forms of mind control through sheer willpower or the inviolability of the human spirit or whatever, because thought and feeling are based in material, biological, chemical, physical processes, um, and physics is the entity's chew toy. I, I like that phrasing quite a lot. Um, and they say th that both of these are scary. Um, um, which basically casting the, the entities as being, um, while, while being really powerful, they're still material beings that can be beaten. They're not like um, outside of the bounds of physics, which I think is a, that that's true. Um, they also continue to say that, that um, um, the mind and body are parts of an inseparable system. The state of the body affects the state of the mind and vice versa. This is something touched on in both Worm and Ward. From Taylor's physical fitness developing alongside her confidence to Victoria trying and failing to super egoically warrior monk her way through emotional trauma and body dysmorphia to Sveta's sexual and reproductive anxieties and so on. Yeah, I like that a lot. Just pointing out the the fact that everybody's body problems and mind problems are, are interlinked. Yeah, absolutely. And they say in some cases, I think mind control is also used by Wildo. Um, to engage with issues like sexual assault and its violations of autonomy, the body, etc., which would be very difficult to read or write about maturely and sensitively if depicted directly. Yeah, I I really love this comment. I think, especially that last part. I think that's very true. Um, we can use these things to broach these topics without having to dive into the literal topic itself and deal with um, how difficult it is to talk about stuff like that. Um, sexual assault is, is a very serious, very traumatic thing for a lot of people. And, and diving directly into that, uh, there's a lot of risks. But in, in fiction, you can explore those things through other means. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I liked, I liked that a lot. All right. Next up, we have Sanjay, who uh, breaks the types of mind control. I think one one kind of common thread throughout all these answers is everyone kind of comes up with their own metric system. And that's probably my favorite part of people's answers to the questions. Is they come up with their own real system. Sanjay here uh, breaks into three different types of mind control, and he kind of uses the different methods that Bonesaw used in Interlude 11H as an example of each. He defines them as puppeteering. Uh, using murder rat as an example, coercion using uh, Amy being given a choice, but it was basically like a, a false choice because she she didn't really have one. And then reeducation, which is like Jack's desire to make Bonesaw rewrite Amy to enjoy the kill. Um, from this reading, he considers puppeteering the worst of those three, um, which I, I it's kind of hard not to to 
agree with that because seeing like the horribleness that was murder rat is pretty tough, pretty tough to read. Mm hmm. Uh, but Sanjay goes on to relate the prevalence of mind control in these stories as a way to represent how the powerful stay in power. It's not the ability to punch things really hard or, or fly really fast. It's either winning over or controlling the hearts and minds of the people. Sanjay indicate, indicates that this is representative of the hard work must put into getting better. You can't punch your way to recovery. And the bad guys seem to just want to take a shortcut by just fixing your brain to get better or do what you want or just like goddess did say i can i can have you forgive that's a shortcut to recovery that mind control can represent and i liked that a lot yeah that's a really fascinating that has really fascinating implications to the story that we're talking about because uh surely you know if you had the capacity to just fix your problem by waving a magic wand it would be very tempting to do so even though um yeah as they say it's a shortcut and it, and it doesn't really work yeah uh free buddha uh, gives us an ascending order um, of worseness of mind whammies and kind of uh, their reason why. So they start out with Jack Slash. Jack Slash makes you, causes you to make mistakes, missteps, and reconsiderations. Contessa um, basically just provides a seed that can grow into what she needs you to do. Um, goddess, you don't see a problem with it and you can't do anything that you're not capable of. Heartbreaker, he can make you want to do what he wants you to do. He's going to punish you anyway when you slip up. Um, and then Veil 4 can just make you sit down and shut up when you have, basically you'll do whatever he says. Mama Mathers provides these obtrusive thoughts um, where you you basically have to marshal your own mind to not think about her, which gives you, I, I actually personally find that one to be pretty fucked up because like it gives you this, handle of control but it's in like a torturous way like oh yeah, yeah. all you have to do is not think of a blue elephant <laughs> um veil for with the eyes uh you don't even know the that you have an order you just end up stabbing someone um it's it's interesting because I, I forgot that there was that kind of distinction where yeah he his eyes were actually his eyes could could do could go further i think then kepri has complete body paralysis you have no control over yourself and no struggle and hijack as above, except most decidedly not in a combat scenario. Um, so I, that's basically, it's interesting. Cause I, th I think this question can say a lot about the person answering it because basically this order of ascendancy implies that losing control of like losing control and being aware of lost control is the, is the scariest thing. Yeah. And, um, and I think some people would say the exact opposite that not being aware that you've lost control is scarier. Yeah, that's that's kind of what what I was expecting to see in, in, in these answers was different people finding different things scary. And that is yeah. indeed what what we saw, which I think lines up with what our, our very first answer said, right, that that to the people that have the control on them. It, different things would make you feel different ways. And that's exactly how what our answers show is because you're basically almost putting yourself in the situation of which would feel the worst on me. And mm -hmm. yeah, we get different answers because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or which is the worst that like if you're someone who values your your mind's sanctity quite a lot. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Free Buddha also posed a question that got a discussion going that that we want to quickly touch on. They asked, uh, given goddess cannot make you do something you're not capable of. Could she actually order Victoria to forgive Amy? Yeah. And the, the discussion that kind of sprang up from this was twofold. Um, I think the first one was. When she said that, was she meaning physically capable of? Because the, when when she defines that parameter 
like I think Capricorn says, so you could make me like destroy the city or something. And she's like, I can't make you do something you're not capable of. And and so Capricorn is physically unable to destroy a city. He doesn't have the power to do that. But I took it as both meanings of that. Right. I took it as, yeah, I can't make you do something you're physically not capable of, but I can't make you do something you're not capable of in general. Like if if you as a person, a human being are not capable of I, I will not I am not capable of kill, taking a life of killing someone, then her compulsion could not make you do that. That was my interpretation of it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think basically it it reorganizes your mind behind the scenes in such a way that the thing that goddess wants seems the most appealing to you. But if if it literally can't reorganize your mind that much without like breaking you in some fundamental way, I think I think then you can't do it. So yeah, if they tell you to strangle, you know, a loved one or something, I think that that yeah. you would you would just not be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that I mean, that to answer Free Buddha's question, then I wonder, right, because she does. Th- there was a little bit of uh, disagreement about the statement. Um, I could make you, you know, forgive her. And I read that as I could make you. And then the, the clarifying statement is I could make you forgive her. But some people read that as the second line in that sentence was an order. Like I could make you pause and then as an order, forgive her. Um, and you see both characters shake their heads, which would indicate that if it was an order, Victoria is not capable of doing that. And this is signaling that she is not capable of doing that right now. Um, I, I tend to read it as it was not a direct command. It was just her clarifying the statement. But, um, I think right now, even if the command was given, I, I honestly think that she would not be able to. So, yeah. Well, another interesting thing is that we haven't really seen what happens when goddess gives them direct commands i mean she's she's given them orders but like we haven't reached a scenario where goddess has been like someone wanted to do x and goddess said no you're going to do y and then seeing how that person reacted yeah that's a good Um, point because all we've seen like we don't know if she has like the command compulsion and it, it presumably it's just like once she clarifies her wishes you're like, oh, oh, that, that's what she wants. And then you do that because that's what she wants. Yeah, um, it's not even so much do this. It's I want you to do this. And because you prioritize my mm-hmm. wants above all else, you're going to. Like she's not yeah. commanding you. She's just telling you what she wants, but has reordered your priority system. Yeah. Right, w- which is why I think when Victoria shakes her head, that's pretty clear evidence to us because goddess is making her aware that goddess would really enjoy it if she would just forgive amy and they'd stop having this conversation and she shakes her head yeah so i like that i like that interpretation yeah Yeah. all right moving on (laughs) last but not least we have still hex who defines several different categories they went about this very scientifically matt i think you'll appreciate this um they define three different things the first is duration and they list either going from shortest to longest is transient persistent and then relentless then they go through intensity pressing twisting crushing or realigning and lastly the horror of it all going from yikes arg to ah um (laughs) by this extremely scientific scale they have decided that what amy did to victoria um is the highest point total on this scale um the only thing that would be higher than it they say is heartbreak heartbreaker on an especially bad day uh, I liked this a lot. This was it was it was a great way to kind of break it down and and do it and uh, check out this. I mean, we don't have time to go through all the details of it, but check out that that post. Check out all the posts. Seriously, guys, this it was it was. A, I'm I'm very happy with your answers to the questions. Good job, everyone. Ten gold yeah. stars. 
Yes, yes. I, I like this as a mode of contextualizing the badness of what Amy did to Victoria because that's I, I genuinely forget that there was even a mind control element there sometimes because the body horror element is so much more obvious. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's pretty messed up. It is. All right. Um, last week, moving on to just our general discussion, last week we, we have to do a, a mea culpa here, Matt, because we speculated a lot about where Victoria's theory that her aura won't work on Amy was coming from. And, uh, well, it turns out, coming directly from amy who said that in interlude two of worm it was a long time ago it's a perfectly valid excuse it was like over a year ago it was but uh our bad i think the question still remains though if um if amy and i think carol also kind of indicates that the aura doesn't work on her the question is are they being completely honest with that or not are they actually immune or are they just telling her that so she stops using it on them all the time um we don't really know but uh i don't know yeah i mean it's it seems it seems from these couple of chapters like it's fairly common for people to not actually know if they're under a compulsion or not. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, also, in the general discussion this week, Megafire drops by again to discuss Carol. Wait, no, he's he's talking about Chris today, but his brand. <laughs> well, yeah, he goes into a theory about Chris's paranoia from the last chapter theorizing that Chris specifically prepared a paranoia form to counter goddess and that it's this form that will save them all. Yeah, that's that's an interesting theory because like we know so little of Chris, right? We know his what emotions he feels at what times are somehow dictated by his powers. Um, so I think it is not unreasonable to say that uh, that this could be the result of him specifically planning for this outcome. And I, I like that. I kind of like that. Yeah, I'm, whatever is going to happen with Chris, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right, let's move on into 9.5. All right. And we immediately resume the fight with Victoria and Caryatid cornered by the woman with purple fire and bags full of pills. This is a fast-paced combat chapter, practically starting out mid-thought. Victoria tries to use her old mantra to guide her behavior, trying to figure out what's right, which leads her to try to help the wounded Caryatid. Yeah, this is a pretty classic like worm-esque action chapter, right? Mm-hmm. But because of that, it means we also get these wonderful beats of characterization throughout the action like we did in All of Worm. Uh, the chapter opens with Victoria wrestling between these these two desires, the desire to act on instinct and the necessary need to plan out a strategy. Instinct meets charging in and beating the shit out of the bad guy, but it could lead to her getting hurt. Planning takes time, time in which the woman could escape Caryatid could become even more hurt. This, I think, in essence, is one of Victoria's biggest struggles, right? The the push and pull between things her mind and her body are screaming at her to do and what she wants to be, the warrior monk, the careful, planning, um, strategic person. And I I love that, like, we we feel the struggle between these two things. And um, and in the middle of the struggle, she falls back on that old mantra that we haven't we haven't seen this mantra in a bit, Matt. It's been a while before she's had to process things through this lens of um, do what the law says or do what's right or reach out. But here she's kind of unsure of what she should do and falls back on that and, and settles into what, like you said, what's feels right, helping carry at it. I kind of love that even as she's walking through the mantra, she has to take like a quick beat towards what would goddess do in this situation? Like it shows that, Mm -hmm. that her mantra is now being influenced by this goddess mind control. Um, it, it, It serves to remind us that, 
you know, we're in the middle of an action scene right now, but we still got this whole goddess problem looming over everything. And um, in retrospect, is a pretty good setup for the, the cliffhanger that concludes the next chapter, because like she's like, goddess could solve this problem, but I can't contact her right now. So um, so, of course, at the end of the chapter, when they're like, who could help us with this? The first thing she says is goddess. Yeah, right. I, I kind of want to read into the fact that she hasn't thought of her mantra in a while forever because um, the mantra was something that came up a lot when she when she had uncertainty and when she wasn't sure what she should do, when she wasn't sure what the best thing was. And I think if the mantra is not coming up, then that's an indication that she doesn't feel uncertain. She just feels like the answer for what to do is obvious. And that's actually kind of an interesting trap because just because the answer seems obvious doesn't mean it's the right answer. Like just because like, like it, it seems like there, there have been times actually where she has done or, or permitted to be done illegal things because they seemed like the obvious right answer. And then Natalie comes by and is like, Hey, what what have you been doing and and it's like well yeah she wasn't consulting her mantra so she hasn't even been noticing that she's been doing illegal things yeah i mean i think it it, it shows she's so we get out of the fallen war right and and the, the portal explosion happens and and she's lost for a little bit but then she finds a focus she finds a goal um she's going to help these people in her group and she's going to m- help make this organization and she's got she's got things down there are no there are no questions to this um Mm -hmm. but you're right um you're absolutely right that 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 could that seems like it could be a good thing but but is it i like that i like that interpretation a lot yeah we'll we'll see we'll see what happens there's something i wanted to pull out real quick here because as she flies over to carry at it she says talk to me and carry at its response is i can't put it out and the text says, my heart broke at the composed, stylish young woman sounding so unlike how she sounded. I just I just wanted to pull this out because I think this is a really fantastic little character beat here for one of our major malfunctions. These kids are inexperienced. They've never been, as far as we know, in a big fight with some like real powerful powers. And and Carrie Adit herself has probably never been injured before in a fight because like her power almost prevents that. And. So the, the text is basically conveying her fear here, but it doesn't need to just say she's afraid. Instead, it uses this mo- moment to compare the person before with the person now. When Victoria looked at Caryatid, she saw someone stylish and composed, and it was because of this that she like decided to go with these people. Like between this and their bond as teammates, it's what what, what made Victoria said, "Yes, you can help us. Yes, you'll do this." Um, we're going to give you an assignment. But underneath all that, underneath that mask of of style and composure is just like a scared kid. And and that's what we see in this moment that like we forget how young these people are sometimes. Yeah, right. That that very immediately brings us back to to thinking about the, how not prepared for the situation these guys are. Yeah. I also think this is great writing because it's good psychology. Um, and as people, we tend to relate to people through the things that we have in common with them. Mm-hmm. And Victoria has in common with Carrie added this stylish uh, focus, this focus on appearance and, and, and dress and her costume and wanting to put forth the right image. So the, like the, the thing that jumps into her mind to describe Carrie added is stylish young woman, even, even in this moment of, of her being um, 
her being injured. And it's like, yeah, that's that's that shows a very real psychological like um, movement on Victoria's part that she's like, oh, she's like me and she's in pain. And that's that hurts more than just like she's in pain, especially because she's like me and under it, she's not possibly not as composed as she as she puts off, which is exactly the way Victoria is that she she outwardly shows composure when inside she's dealing with a whole bunch of stuff man that's a great point i really like that that's great yeah yeah just one line too yeah so now victoria tells the woman the woman with the purple fire that they'll let her go if she lets them leave and then the woman is not really responding so she tries to use her aura to get the woman's attention which then results in an explosion of purple fire victoria infers that the woman's power burns powers yeah, uh, this is great. I, I think this is a really clever idea for a power. And I, I see like why teacher likes this person so much, because this is like the perfect counter for just about every situation. But I want to drill down into the symbolic here. You, you're probably not surprised about that. But moving away from what this literally means and talking about it, what it symbolically means, because we have this moment where she says, listen to me. I screamed the words then in anger, lashing out. In much the same way I might have struck her across the face with the back of my hand, I used my aura. This time, the fire exploded. We have Vicky here specifically using, in anger, her aura. And this immediately reminded me of what happened during the Hard Boil show. She gets mad, and she wants to reach out and slap the person causing that anger, but instead she uses her aura. And... On the show, it caused like a figurative blow up that resulted in some serious consequences. But here it's a it's a literal blow up. It's an explosion. Yeah, there's there's a repetition of the of the beat with with a reinforcement of the consequence. Yeah, it's almost like part of some kind of structure of of beats. It could be it the could second be. instance of one such, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just love I love how we kind of take the literal and and connect it back to something that was just a figurative thing, right? Like this is an immediate consequence to, and I know it's not literally a consequence to her using her aura in, um, in anger, right? It, this is not, this is not the, like she has a Trump power, like anyone that used a power around her, it would have exploded like this. But in the world of symbols and figurative language, Matt, we can say that, Victoria used her aura in anger again, and there was a consequence again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and e- each time it's a consequence that is negative. It's, it's worth saying right, it, yeah. it, it, blow, it blows, it blow, it's a it's blowback. It, it, uh, yeah, not, not the consequence she wanted to happen. Sure. So, yeah, so she now shields herself, um, from the purple fire with the wretch, which results in the wretch itself burning. Uh, now Victoria's costume is on fire, and she finally leaves the house and dives into a puddle of water. I love the description of how the wretch burns and collapses, too. It doesn't just short out or go out like it has before. Like, there's, the description is like is like it's material that's burning around her. The, the vague profile of the wretch coming to pieces in dribbles akin to burning oil and scraps like flaming paper. I love mm-hmm. I love that so much. Uh, the attentional detail is really fantastic, and I think it cements the level of threat here. We're not even really sure what the wretch burning away means. And in this moment, neither is Victoria. She says, I raised my defenses and then remembered it had burned. What did that mean? 
Like, does it mean it's gone? Is it going to be there when I raise my defenses? Is it going to, is something going to happen to it? And then, uh, she gets shot, but the force field takes the hit. So we're like, okay, there it is. Um, I really love, I love that moment so much. Yeah. The force field takes the hit, but I don't know if we know that it's, um, fully intact. Right. So. Yeah. I guess we'll we'll have to see what happens there. But yeah, no, that, that was definitely a, a moment of like, oh, shit, this is this is a this is a serious fight because her power could be permanently altered by this. Yeah. So now having fled outside, she joins withdrawal in fighting the horde of teachers thralls who seem to be pulling out an endless series of weapons, almost tailor made to address their own powers. Finale is using her onomatopoeia power. But it still doesn't seem to be, to be very effective Who at this point. Who cares if it's ineffective when it's this hilarious? <laughs> when she says, bam, blast, zap, bam, bam, and fuck you. <laughs> so great. I love Finale so much. Yeah, me too. So then Victoria beats up some guys and rejoins Karyatid, noting that she's not as badly burned as Victoria had feared. The great and powerful Wildbow has shown mercy. Praise be. I want to point out how badass Carrie added is at this moment, though. She was the scared, overwhelmed person moments before. But in the intervening time, she seems to have kind of collected herself because when Vicky comes to her, the only thing she cares about is catching the purple fire lady who is now trying to flee via the exit portal. This this exchange is so great. She reaches up with her burned arm and gave me a shake. Did you get her? She's out there. They're prepping a tinker thing. Maybe evac. Can you get her? I can try. The others are okay. Withdrawal fell badly, but I think so. Outnumbered badly. Then go get her or help them. Help me stand. She's all about the mission. She's all about going back into it. She's completely composed and poised again and ready to go. And it's like. Sweet. Yeah. It's almost like she's a a pillar or something. Yeah. Almost like a a pillar for her team. (laughs) Almost. Um, Yeah. So. So in mid fight, though, more enemies arrive. And I love the shorthand here that the new enemies are carrying guns with bands of teal encircling them. And I think this conveys in one sentence that the reinforcements have a different kind of weapon. And it's not hard for us to infer that these new weapons were brought out specifically uh, to deal with the situation as it's evolving. And and quickly we see that, yeah, these weapons are meant to deal with Victoria, the powerful brute mover who's been giving them so much trouble. Um, I just like I thought it was really efficient to just be like, yeah, they have teal bands on them. Not not to be like we didn't need a lengthy description of what the guns look like. Yeah, it's just and, and, and it makes sense. The teacher guns. would have his guns. Yeah. And it also makes sense that the guns would be like organized by color scheme or something, too. Yeah. And it just kind of shows how over their head they are here. Right. Because like they're fighting an enemy that can adjust tactics on the fly to a level of, oh, we just got to sub out like, oh, we don't have a power to to. Like go against this power. Oh, we'll just sub in new people. Um, And like, it's just it's teacher has gotten to the point where he's so powerful that it's scary. And this reminds me of imps hilarious elevator metaphor at the end of worm. Mm -hmm. When she's talking about how uh, he's he's blocking the elevator. But if we try to move him out of the way, some big guy's going to come up. And their plan, yeah. their plan at that point was to kick him down the elevator shaft before the big guy had a chance of coming up. And we don't know exactly how Tattletail planned to do that. But whatever it is, it doesn't seem like it worked out, right? Like, Teacher is the big dude, and he's out of the elevator now. Like, there, there is... He's so powerful at this point, and he's got seemingly unlimited resources, especially with his Mama Mathers and Veilfor and Scapegoat uh, recruitment. 
Like, I, it's it's bad. It's bad. Yeah, it seems like Tattletale had to deal with a lot of other things that she wasn't anticipating in that right. uh, in in at the end of Worm there. Um, although it is, it does make me suspicious now that you bring up Tattletale, and I realize that we don't actually know what Tattletale is up to. So yeah, that's true. Um, I, I love. <laughs> To cement how bad their situation is, I like how Victoria is kind of going through thinking about him. He's a tinker, I thought. The principles are the same. The toolbox that evolves to answer problems. The need for resources. The only thing that help hold him back, like any tinker, are time and resources. He's had two years of time, and God has had enlightened us about his resource acquisition. Therefore, Mama Mathers, others. Like most tinkers, he has them make resources that help them acquire or refine their resources. And because one key factor in his network or engine of his are people, he gets the hypnotist to help him get more people. So, like, she's literally like, fuck, he solved his weakness. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, this is, I mean, in the middle of the fight, she's thinking about this because she's, like, she's really throughout these chapters struggling. Like, her big thing is, what is he planning? What is he doing? What does he want? And she's struggling with that throughout the chapter in her internal monologue. And as things look dire, her that internal struggle reflects that dire situation. Yeah, and, and he could be potentially like uh, much of his resource base could have been assimilated very quickly using Veilfor, especially. Um, like it, I mean, we already know that he can move quickly even without that, though, because like at the end of Worm, he had like this large base of of uh, like a large number of thralls, and he had just gotten out of prison yeah. like within a number of days or something. So. Yeah. 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 He's, so, it's, it's scary, man. Like, it's like this is a big deal. And he's moving now yeah. in, in the middle of our, our characters being compromised by the other giant threat. Yeah. It's pretty well set up. Not going to lie. So these guns that they brought out fill the air with a reactive matrix of force field beams that grow and constrict around any flyers in their midst. So Victoria is caught up in the sky. She tries a sequence of clever tricks to try to get out. Uh, including trying to ignite her own aura with a uh, purple flame in order to harm the people shooting at her. Um, and she succeeds at catching some of them on fire, but they don't really seem to mind being lightly on fire. Yeah, they say two individuals were burning with purple flyer and they didn't move or react. Their stairs were vacant. That's pretty scary, Matt. Yeah. I mean, we had been calling them thralls for a while now, but it's kind of amazing how just conked out these guys really are they don't seem paint to feel pain or fear or any emotion really is this i mean do you think this is just specifically teacher's power here are we seeing kind of the result of the added benefits of of the people he's recruited i don't know if we can say necessarily i know that we've seen a wide range of things from teacher's power we've seen everything from saint who would deny even having any compulsion on him um all the way to like um, views on other characters who just seem to be like very docile and following orders like the way trickster was behaving we've seen people who were even like teacher when we had his point of view describe them as like acting normal but but he knew that on the inside they were actually like completely quiescent um so it seems like it ha it can do a, uh, it seems like he can achieve a couple more than a few different levels of effects depending on how heavy he lays it on yeah okay that makes sense so i mean and i mean yeah it, i feel like if it was veil for or mama mathers they wouldn't necessarily be acting like they were um zombies yeah that's true we haven't really seen that behavior from their victims but what if scapegoat was just taking the pain away from them well maybe 
I don't know. I mean, yeah, we're reaching singularity of powers now. <laughs> so although Victoria is stuck up in the sky, Byron is able to knock down most of the dudes who are building the escape portal. And then he looks at Victoria in a way that makes her understand that he would really love to be able to swap out with Tristan to take advantage of his ability to encase everything in rock and just kind of end the situation. And Victoria is very, very tempted to urge him to do so. But she thinks of Dean and the clarity of rules and she shakes her head. Oh, Matt, I love this so much. Look, look at this internal dilemma. Look at as she goes through one one by one. And then Tristan would help. We'd have the evidence, go back to Goddess and work out a game plan that worked for both Gimel and Shin. We'd screw over teacher and we would organize against him. Yes, it would be a win. Yes, it was a work. It was workable long term. Yes, in the service of the law, fighting the lawless in what felt right and in turning to someone else for help if we were struggling as we were. Yes. In service to that kernel of warmth in my heart when I thought about Dean and the classifications, when I thought about the black text printed on white paper that detailed the rules to be followed, the chain of command in times of crisis, I shook my head dramatically enough that he could see. No. So yes, yes, this would solve every problem. Yes, this would follow each and every bit of my motto exactly. Like, legal, feels right, and is reaching out to others. Yes, 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 yes. But no, because of Dean, because of black text on white paper, no, because of the chain of command, the rules to be followed. And I think this goes right back to the things that Victoria was struggling with at the beginning of this chapter. We open the chapter with her saying instinct. This is what my instinct tells me to do. And this is what strategy. This is what planning will tell me to do. And in this moment, every instinct in her body is telling her yes. Every part of her is telling her yes, except for one thing, one thing that falls back on planning and strategy and black and white rule-based thinking. And that, that is the thing that saves her. And I love that we kind of come full circle in this chapter with that. We start with that. And that is what makes this decision here that could potentially end up saving them. Yeah. And it feels very authentic to me when just this idea that, this really is her uh, touchstone. Yeah. Because when we met her at the beginning of this story, the thing that she was doing, which was sort of her way of um, soothing herself and coping and getting through life um, when she was still far too traumatized to even use her powers. Yeah. Um, she, she wasn't even flying. You know, she, she was literally not even flying. She, she had barely even used um, her force field ever. It, it was it was the it was being basically the black and white text uh, cape rules interpreter and and master of giant stacks of books for the patrol block. It was all based around this stuff. This is what she takes solace in. And and, and that's how the story started. So it's it works perfectly as her foundation of, of what she what she goes down to when she doesn't know what else to do. Yeah, because that you're right. That predates her mantra, right? Yeah. Um, that that the mantra comes later in the story. That is the thing that we start her with. So that that is the the core of her, and it's that core that she holds on to here. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I like that. So they fail to stop the escape portal from being built, and the woman with the purple fire runs through and detonates the machinery behind her, killing many of the thralls. So only 15 or so opponents remain and a combination of Byron's power and finale's finale 
in, incapacitate them. Oh, it's such a cool power too, though, Matt. It's like she's she it, it literally builds to this cacophonous finale where she uses like percussion sound blasts to juggle dudes. Um, it, it's really really cool, and she still doesn't believe in herself. She still just gives herself a hard time because she because people don't fall like sandbags. <laughs> yeah. But I right. love this. No. Like it, it's a, she builds to it and then she kind of blows it and then she has to recharge, presumably, because she like asks, um, are, are any more people coming? I don't want to do this if more people are coming. My my interpretation, which may be just completely an assumption, was that part of the element of her blaster power was like she was um, laying the groundwork for what ended up happening. Yeah, I think like, I like, think so. Yeah. Yeah. And. Yeah, um, she, I just, mean, it's a she pretty... can't just do the finale like you can't just like we've seen a fireworks show. You start with the finale and it's just like, what? That's too much. It's too, you got to you got to yeah. you got to work up to it. Yeah, it's it's now that you mentioned it, it's kind of funny that humans apply our notions of like plotting to a fireworks show. <laughs> um, Look, I like fireworks. OK, yeah, everyone does that. They better have a good arc. Good, good characters. Anyway, <laughs> um, so. <laughs> So the battle won, they touch base with the malfunctions. They learn that the target was the prison pharmacist, and she's probably transporting the drugs into the prison, not out of it. And, um, yeah, Carrie added says, the prison pharmacist, high risk because of her access and criminal history. The serious look that Byron and I shared communicated a hell of a lot, but for the benefit of our novice malfunctions, it needed to be said. What if, she's, what if she wasn't taking those drugs out of the prison, I asked. It's their overwhelming focus. I love that little beat because like we're showing that Victoria and Byron have actually relatively quickly gotten to a place of nonverbal communication, right? Like these two have not spent that much time together. Again, this is the most amount of time we've seen Byron since the story started, but they've Mm -hmm. quickly established this thing. And and it was something that we saw back when Byron looked at her desperately in the middle of the fight too. Like she knew what he was talking about. She knew what he wanted in that moment. They've, they've got this, this nonverbal thing down, but, and I think this is rooted in them being experienced heroes, right? They've both been on teams before. They've both done this thing a lot before. Um, and they've got a, a back and forth kind of established because of that. Um, but the, the malfunctions haven't cause they're new. So they still need a little exposition to get what's going on. Yeah. Which I think from a writing perspective is rather brilliant because a lot of times in stories, like if you need characters to explain something for the sake of the audience, you have two characters say things to each other that they wouldn't normally like, this reminds me of a time when we did that one thing and now I'm going to explain um, in full detail that one thing, even though you were there and know exactly what I'm talking about. So adding a character to the fiction who needs to be caught up on the events is a tool that writers use to make their exhibition seem a little more genuine in the world. And it, it stops it from feeling too fake to us. And I think the major malfunctions serve that role here and, you know, throughout this chapter they have. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, I agree. It's it, it show, it, it's one, one of the many tools that I think Wild Bill uses to show our characters um, thoughts and growth in some ways by contrasting them against the people who are around them. Yeah. And then we move on into 9.6. And this opens up with reality is on fire, Jester said in a very matter of fact way before adding purple fire. 
So, Scott, what the hell does purple fire mean in our symbol library? Well, well, Matt, purple is a symbol of royalty, so it represents light, hope, and truth being co-opted by a regressive monarchistic ruling structure that both teacher and goddess employ. It provides the control, order, and warmth that everyone so desperately needs, but does so by nullifying your powers, literally igniting your traumas instead of helping you recover from them. The purple fire is a false fire. It's not a solution, just like goddess and teacher are not, but it is more resistant to its counter as seen by Byron's water being unable to work on it, thusly showing the temptation of the purple fire as something we cling to as the cold begins. So okay. I was like trying to do like an egg analysis thing there, but then I wrote it all out and was like, hey, yeah. <laughs> that, that makes a, a certain amount of sense. Yeah, I kind of like that, actually. It's, it's not something that is, I think, deliberate at all, but that's the great thing about analysis of literature. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. Symbols in particular. Yeah. I mean, whatever, whatever we want. Um, yeah. I mean, all joking aside, it's it's been I mean, I don't. I mean, so, yeah, that, that I think I think elements of that work pretty well because we Jester saying that reality is on fire certainly is an apropos thing to be saying at this point in the story. Yeah. Um, so Victoria then hangs out with Jester, sheltering from the rain. The patrol block handles the mop up of the situation. Jester obviously wishes he could be more a part of Victoria's life, it seems, from what he's saying. And um Scott, I know I'm supposed to make fun of him and like make a joke about his awkward flirtiness, but he just seems kind of earnest and sad. Yeah, I I really think this is a delightful scene and it's like this little it, it highlights both of their characters so much. Jester is this kind of goofball that's easy to make fun of, but he's a really kind hearted goofball and his his genuine concern and care for Victoria really plays here it, it's it's really great and yeah he's being a little bit flirty but you know what so what so what if he's being a little bit flirty yeah it's it's in a very charming way right and there's this line where he says i did this whole patrol thing because powers kick ass and i thought if i didn't have powers i could still be the guy in uniform that the goddamn hero turns to and says hey guy with the cool call sign are you going to have our backs and i could say yes i love this line so much this is such a human thing that I believe people would actually want to do like to, to be the guy that is next to the guy with powers. If you can't be the guy with powers, I think is something like we've already seen it in Natalie. Right. And we're seeing it in Jester here. And of course we always have these people that want this thing quickly realize the closer they are to capes, like what the life of a person with powers actually entails. And then they're like, Oh shit like the all the messed up shit they have to deal with the messed up decisions they have to make all the stuff they have to do every one of those people is always like damn and i think jester's kind of like that too right now he's like look i always wanted to be this i always wanted to be this guy i still think i could maybe one day be the guy but every time i get called to help you it's some fucked up shit (laughs) yeah yeah we saw some of this in in worm too and it was kind of even worse because it was always the people who taylor was trying to get to work for her yeah and they would be like, I can't I can't do this anymore. Right. Um, but I think I think it is telling that the people in this anti parahuman sentiment that's going around, the people that tend to not be on that side, the people that support the cape still are the people that have been closest to them, the people that have seen their day in, day out lives and how how 
hard they are. And I think that kind of lends credence to Victoria's opinion that a lot of the problems that they're facing is just ignorance and with communication, with sharing, with uh, a beacon, you could you could clear some of this up. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a that's a great point. Re- remove some of that grounds for othering. Yeah, I yeah. I also like Jester's kind of sad here. I think I think you're right. I, I think there's a tinge of sadness to Victoria that I felt here too. Th- this this friendship with Jester, this like joking, semi flirty, relatively normal relationship. It's like it's what she had at the beginning of the story and what she very quickly lost. And it's not something she gets to have, right? Like her team is filled with, with people that are great. I love all these characters, but they're complicated. They're difficult. There's like always checking to make sure if they're okay to make like, she doesn't get to have this kind of just this kind of relaxed friendship with a person. Yeah. This, this casualness. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's uh, I agree. Um, and, and it's interesting. Maybe the fact that I'm reading some sadness into the interaction, it's not actually Jester who's sad. It's it may actually be Victoria who's sort of casting sadness over the, the situation. Yeah, I think it's I think it's both. Yeah. So he also asks after Swan Song, which reminds Victoria that Swan Song could very well be in trouble. Oh, yeah, that 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 girl. <laughs> yeah. We forgot um, about her. Yeah, we forgot about her, but now we're the text is reminding us, hey, there's other things happening in the story. Yeah. So she heads over to the malfunctions who are all kind of wired and eager to follow up and continue to be useful. The Victoria urges them to rest and recover, uh, but they really want to go get that pharmacist. Well, most of them do. Finale seems kind of has, hesitant. These fucking heroes. I love them. Please don't die. But I'm, I'm going to have to do a thing here, Matt. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be a little unfair to these guys. All right, do it. So so that interaction with Finale is really interesting to me because Victoria has described these guys as like one of the things she looks at them and is so like enamored by is how much this team has stayed together through thick and thin. This team has stayed together and they're such a great team because they've lasted so long together. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, you mm-hmm. get this moment where where withdrawal says, I think I speak for everyone when I say we found out the pharmacist was up to something. We started this and it would be satisfying to be involved when it wraps up. I want to get her. Yes. Carrie added said, I looked at finale. I want what they want. She mumbled, evading eye contact. I want what they want. She said, obviously lying. So we know finale is this person with a lot of self doubt. We know maturity wise, she hasn't aged really like she's younger for some reason than the rest of her group. And, and we think it's a weird power thing, a result of her powers. And it, it probably is. But again, what does that mean symbolically? Does finale actually want to be a crime fighter? <laughs> is yeah. that what she wants? Does right. she, does she want to yeah. be doing these things or she's just, is she just being kind of gang pressed into this by her other teammates? Could this arrested development of hers kind of represent symbolically her lack of choice and ownership over her own life. Yeah. It makes you wonder at the fact that they apparently like had zero luck actually getting hero work for many years prior to gold morning. And it's like, well, maybe that she's part of the reason for that. Yeah. Look, I love the major malfunctions and I certainly don't want to say anything bad about a goop boy and statue girl, but 
if Victoria had not been paying attention and had not noticed Victoria's or, or Finale's extreme reticence at the idea of getting back into this fight, she might have had them actually do it. She might have said, OK, that's fine. Come on. And. That's not what Finale wanted to do. And and th- we see that in this moment where after she says, no, you're going to stay back. I could see the tension released in Finale's shoulders. This isn't just like a minor like. Like it's it's not really the same thing as like the laid back Tristan method of letting this stuff happen. It seems a little more intense than that. Yeah. And I want to point out that there's another level on which this means something, which is that and you you alluded to this, the fact that Victoria. She, she kind of idealizes them, I think, like she kind of sees them as like, oh, this is this is what a hero team can be. Like people who really have each other's backs, friends who really care about each other, really love each other, um, stick together, like you said, through thick and thin. And that's not what she has. And that's maybe what she has never had or maybe had it for a very brief time and then lost. Yeah. And 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 feels like it's something that, that she wants, maybe even feels like it's something that she deserves. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I don't know if it's real. Yeah. I, I I like that because it's like you're older and you've been through some shit and then you see this young group of like high school kids that have all this stuff ahead of them and they look like they've got this tight knit group from the outside and it's like everything that you either had and lost or never really had. And there's a little bit of not jealousy, but like, oh, wouldn't it be so great to, to go back in time and be in that situation and be in that group and get to experience that from a, a tight knit group of people that's not going to break up and not going to betray you and turn you into a monster. Um, and and I, I definitely think you're right that there is a little bit of that in how Victoria looks at these people. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, I think I think we are getting hints that it's not reality and it, it almost never is reality. It's it's the outside looking in type of thing. But um yeah i think it's gonna be interesting to see where that goes yeah i'm i'm what's interesting is i think i'm way more interested in the um um malfunctions after this interaction yeah just because it's like oh things aren't perfect yeah i mean they make it makes them more interesting characters for sure yeah 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 right and they were already fucking great yes they were (laughs) so ultimately she convinces them to hang back for a while at least then Byron drives himself and, and Terry's to meet up with the team, uh, transporting one of the tinker boxes with them in the car. And they have kind of an important conversation in transit. Yeah, that's uh, it's putting it pretty mildly. Yeah. So Byron tells her about his issue um, and about the arrangements that he and Tristan made with the assassins. Uh, finally, finally, some juicy info. Juicy, juicy info, Scott. So it turns out that the two halves of Capricorn have to regularly check in with the assassin crew or they're going to get their limbs bonked off. Um, yeah, and to clarify, they're not assassins. It's it, They're end worse than death assassins, uh, which doesn't thrill Victoria, who is familiar with such concepts. Yeah, this is the dumbest idea ever th- that anyone has ever had. Like, it's terrifying. It's extremely terrifying. But what the fuck? Guys... <laughs> This is a really stupid idea. And I think I think the great thing is you're absolutely on Victoria's page throughout this because she's learning all about this. And like, what? What yeah. were you? What? what? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, you're basically thinking what she's saying. Yeah. Like, yeah, 
this is exactly the kind of thing that happens in cape situations and now <laughs> and, and now it's out of control yeah. yeah um he says um he said it was extreme enough that he'd have to stay in line i was witness to it as i am all things tristan then it was done with and you're okay with that I'm resigned to it, Byron said. It happened, and by the time I wrapped my mind around it and did my own research, it was done. Too hard to revoke, and things were better. They were almost as good for almost good for the first time in years. So I guess I gotta come clean here, Scott. My original read of the conversation in the prologue was that Byron set up the hitman situation. Uh but there's actually more than a small chance that uh Byron actually did do it and he's lying about Tristan doing it but mm-hmm. I think Occam's razor you know like at some point I have to conclude that the story is just telling what it seems like it's telling and maybe just maybe literally everything <laughs> about this character and the story in general isn't carefully chosen ruse to throw me off and mislead me yeah Matt sometimes in books things are just things he said ironically um but i i think i think you're right here like the 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 reveal is that it it wasn't byron it was tristan and byron got talked into it and i I think a lot of people made the assumption that it was byron and i i couldn't like i honestly couldn't remember why we did that so i went back to the chapter and look and the 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 line that made everyone think this was byron was at the at the very end of of the chapter of glowworm moonsong is talking to cap who we know this cap is the Byron cap because she's actually being nice to him and says, so long as the professional you hired has it covered. And his response is, yeah, covered. So the thing about this is it it is imperfectly in line with Byron's new story, right? It's not contradicted. Yeah. It's like, yeah, um, Moonsong knew about the arrangement that they were both in on, but it was really Tristan leaving it. And and you read his yeah covered as less of a declaratory statement and more of a like, I don't feel good about this, but I'm in it. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I must say that I definitely suspect that it was intentional that the interlude or the, you know, the 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 piece of text where where Capricorn sets up the assassins is following following a Tristan block of text and preceding a Byron block of text. Right. So you're meant to not actually be sure who it was. It is T underscore Anki, which in retrospect makes it seem a lot more likely to be Tristan. Yeah. Um and it just it just seemed like from the momentum of the scene like you were it just seemed from the momentum of the scene like it was Byron to me. But now yeah. when I go back and read it and I know these characters better it doesn't seem like it's Byron to yeah. me anymore. So. Yeah, and, and and that's the whole thing, right? Like, yes, absolutely Byron could be lying here. He has an incentive to lie because he really wants Victoria on his side still with this whole thing. So making it seem like, yeah, I was the one that did this whole thing would probably make things worse. But based on what we know about these two characters now, Tristan is the type of guy that is going to do something like this. That's kind of, kind of rush into a thing. Like Tristan rushes in it's kind yeah. of a thing. And it seems like letting it happen and not stopping it is also the exact kind of thing Byron would do because like, even if he objected to it, he he's and laid back is kind of the wrong word. He's just kind of resigned to things that happen. So 
he's not going to speak up about it, but it's too late. This lines up perfectly with how we understand these two characters. And it's actually something that I had trouble with for a while because like with the assumption that it was Byron that did this, I just, that, that, that did not line up with what I knew of Byron. It like, it didn't seem to, to, but, but it seemed like the book had told me it was Byron. So I was just like, okay, I believe you, but it, it just didn't line up for me. And so this, Yes, there. I will still reserve the right to say, yeah, he was he possibly was lying, um, eating some chocolate while he's having the story. But it, it just seems to line up with everything we know about the character so well. Right. Yeah. I mean, it again, I I either have to assume that like everything we know about this character is misdirection and like red herring or that's that's the wrong word, but misdirection. Um, or I just have to be like, all right. Yes. His characterization is that he's a worn down like broken down uh part of this duo and he's just he's just accepting it and he goes along with it and that's perfectly consistent with what we've seen so i'm glad you're on my side and then I as mean, soon as we say that the next chapter will reveal the opposite and i'll be that's, like damn it that's pretty much it's pretty much what i'm thinking i'm like i'm like there's gonna be a chocolate bar like in the next <laughs> chapter um but anyway anyway so so the group of monstrous assassins is called Barcode, apparently, and they do contracts of various sorts. And Byron clarifies kind of what the arrangement is. We meet up every few days. We confirm we're okay. We swap. There are two or three people who show up, sometimes with backup, whoever they're working with at the time. One is usually a thinker. They can read people, read us. So I feel like we're being told these details because we're going to see and or have to deal with this situation. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that this is set up. We're going to see this played out in some way in the near future. Yep. Victoria is going to have to be dealing with this. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so I'm not sure if I follow Byron's train of thought here, though, because he says they'll come after him, Byron, if they detect that Tristan is under a mental compulsion and at first I was kind of thrown off by that because I was like, why wouldn't they conclude that Tristan is the compromised one and go after him? And then I, the, the only thing I could think of was like, is it because they would assume that Byron had a hand in putting Tristan in that state? Yeah, and that that was that was my read on it, that the, the system is set up that any kind of mental manipulation against one of the brothers would be considered a sign that they were perhaps being uh manipulated or pushed out by the other one like i'm imagining a scenario where byron decides that he wants control so he has some one of his buddies skate buddies mind control tristan to always want to switch back to byron after a few moments so he could like beat barcode's test still use the powers in battle but byron would have effectively eliminated his brother that's the that's the scenario i'm imagining could happen and the one that this whole test seems to want to prevent yeah, makes makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense in the fact that it's a really stupid plan. Yeah. <laughs> like, like they're they're capes fighting against other heroes. There's all kinds of crazy situations that could happen that they could not possibly foresee and to put themselves in a situation where anything that happens to them could result in a fate worse than death. It's so dumb. And Victoria, <laughs> I love Victoria's reaction here. Things go wrong, Byron. This exact situation is one of those things. This thing that's happening right now is exactly why you don't do this. And he's like, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. this isn't even the first time that they've 
potentially had to deal with with uh, brainwashing in this story. No, so <laughs> you think they would have taken that as a warning sign? Oh my god, guys, Tristan, come on, man. Yeah, I like this. This is just another element of tension thrown in to 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 make that ticking clock. Except now there's like twelve ticking clocks. Yeah, we we can't actually see when they're gonna ring because yeah it's like so. it's it would there they were supposed to meet the guys last night so they're like yeah it's got to be tonight or i'm gonna just have my limbs chopped off yep or or something else or something else <laughs> <laughs> so victoria asks how tristan found these guys and then byron delivers a pretty great monologue about what tristan is like uh, from his point of view and how things just work out for him can 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 i read it matt matt let me let me read it matt Yes, Scott. I saw it happen, and I don't even know. I smile, and it's it's an expression. He smiles, and people like him. He gets online and finds people we used to fight, people we threw in jail, asks how they're doing, finds common ground in the world ending, fishes. A couple weeks later, somehow he has these guys with a clandestine system for getting in touch. I didn't even think it would happen, so I just let him do his thing, focused on my own things, and surprise, it all came together. Am I willing to shell out some of my own cash so it's not just a one party paying the scary mercenaries? I should know. I should know not to underestimate him when he sets his mind to something. So he made him pay too. <laughs> I know that's that's a, that's an easy detail to gloss over, but yeah. it's like it's like I know you don't want this and didn't think it would happen, but I need like thousands of dollars. Can, isn't it like isn't it really expensive based yeah, on their conversation? Yeah, it's super expensive. Yeah. Can you spot me some cash? So. We could potentially get, oh my God. Uh, yeah. But, but I think this is really wonderful. I, I especially like jump to that line. I smile and it's an expression. He smiles and people like him. It, these two sentences, I think perfectly define everything about their relationship from Byron's point of view, that he, Tristan is a guy who just seems to get whatever he wants. And, and he just like, all he has to do is throw in a smile and people respond to him. Whereas me, they don't react to me that way. Like, it's just I I he has a power that I don't have. And I just think that's a perfect way of en- encapsulating everything about them. And not only like understanding completely from Byron's perspective how and why this happened, because Tristan is this guy who has a way of just getting what he wants. Yeah, even if it's yeah. really stupid. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it makes us maybe distrust Tristan's judgment a, a teeny bit. A little bit. bit, a little bit. And yeah. I mean, we've been going back and forth on these people, right? And I, I jokingly, you talk about your mistrust of Byron, but I, I mean, I, I don't dislike Tristan anymore. But yeah, I mean, like he, Victoria and him were like in the zone with kind of the shared leadership thing. And I think that relationship is probably going to be pretty damaged by what she's just learned about what he's willing to do. Yeah, well, and there's there's also this thing lurking in the background that like people who worked with Capricorn think Tristan is a psychopath, and we've we've been biased against Moonsong for various reasons, but maybe she has a point. Yeah, this is definitely um point for Tristan being a psychopath. Yeah, I mean, and again, I, I'm not I'm not coming down too hard either way but like the the way byron describes him here like he's describing a kind of glibness and manipulativeness that does sound like a psychopath yeah so. well and and i think i think the thing we have to make sure 
we keep in mind here that I understand why Tristan felt the need to do this. Like, I understand he's terrified of this relationship. He's trying to become a better person. He's trying to improve things with his brother. And Tristan takes extreme actions and he needs extreme actions. And he thinks this will make sure that I don't do anything. And 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 I think in his mind, he was doing it to protect Byron from himself. Right. I don't think yeah. in his mind he was saying, like, I'm going to keep you from doing this to me like this is in his mind. This was a, a probably a selfless decision. Like, I want to make sure that what I presumably the advantages I took of you in the past don't happen again. Mm-hmm. And I like this this little beat here where he says, you know, it worked for a little while. Things were mm-hmm. better. And I think that fits into what we were talking about earlier in the show about shortcuts to solving our problems. Right. This was kind of a shortcut that they took to solving the problem. It was an outside influence kind of forcing them to do something. And it was not actually dealing with their issue at hand. They just took a shortcut. Yeah, I, li- I like that a lot. That's that's absolutely absolutely what's happening here. Um, I, I wanted to emphasize that I I actually think it's kind of lazy to just write off a character who demonstrates qualities of manipulativeness as a psychopath. I'm I'm entertaining the idea that this character might be intended to be a psychopath, but also I'm interested in interpretations where everything he's doing makes sense from his point of view and is not motivated by you know a complete lack of empathy for example sure sure. so i'm it's more like i'm just i'm considering it you know yeah we know these words have a lot of weight behind them and we're not we're not wielding them with definitive like conclusions right yeah 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 well i also think in real life it's super tempting to write off people who who wrong you as being a psychopath which is yeah usually not accurate yeah and and dangerous and and leads to continued stigma against mental health issues and and all that yeah. all that jazz yeah so in in conclusion from all this byron tells her that she'll need to have him put in a coma if they can't resolve the situation soon so i wonder if he literally means like knock me into a coma um or if he had something more subtle in mind i mean i don't know i don't know Victoria believes in like subtle putting of people in comas. She she go punch him in the face. Yeah. So there's this part as they drive, like the, the conversation has kind of ended and we get to this part where we drove in silence. There was no radio and our only soundtrack was the noise of the wheels through wet ice and the patter against the roof car car roof the i'd spent relatively little time in cars and vehicles for the past seven years or so even during my stint with the patrol block and my awareness of the individual noises was harder to block out not that i minded white noise was a good grounding for contemplation and the sounds were alien enough that i wasn't reminded of anything in particular i don't have too much to say about this part it's just i, I really just felt this was some really great wild bow detail work like it's just the type of detail work that we love so much. The silence of the car, the, the, the conversation, this, this awkward conversation kind of dies. And, um, there's this like really relatable beat of awkward silence. And then Victoria uses this to think about, um, her trying to center herself and trying to figure out what she's going to do next. And this leads to her saying it was all backward, all backward. And, like she's so thrown for a loop. And I think this is all prepping us for the most, in, most tense scene ever that we're about to get to because she's just yeah. kind of lost in this moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. She's, she's completely off balance. She's 
she's not she's walking into this situation not really knowing what she's going to do um so they arrive at the team's location and now natalie is there uh, which we i don't think we expected uh-uh. she's looking freaked out uh, clearly she's aware that something is going on but she's not sure what she's just noticing that people are not following an agenda that makes sense to her um i think her being freaked out is kind of like the highlight of this part of the chapter for me because she's making things more tense by her very presence yeah um and we also have victoria's obvious understanding that she herself will move to stop natalie if natalie tries to call for help or anything like that yeah and last week we thought like byron's being dropped in the middle of the shit was like holy shit I mean, this is like 10 times worse. At least Byron was able to completely understand like what was going on. Poor fucking Natalie has no idea why people are behaving this way. And and but yeah, she seems to have this implicit understanding that if she speaks up, if she asks questions, if she questions anything that they're doing, she will be putting herself in danger. And it's just like, oh, no, this poor girl. Yeah. Also, they've kind of made a habit of running roughshod over her or dismissing her concerns. So the fact that they're doing it here um, doesn't set off the alarm bells that it would if they had actually been nice to her. Yeah, I I think um, this it makes you kind of sad, right? Because it's kind of a regression, like her character did this brave heroic thing and, and you got the feeling that she was going to be included as part of the team. And now this this mental compulsion has kind of reverted her to her role before, which is the person who like doesn't know what's going on and tries to speak and is ignored generally by the rest of the team. Yeah, I agree. That's definitely, that definitely hits hard. So Victoria notes that Sveta's tendrils are kind of going low key crazy. Um, I don't know if we've seen her this out of control lately. Maybe her shard doesn't like the compulsion. Yeah, uh, perhaps I, I see this as kind of a visual representation of just the sheer amount of tension in the scene goddess has has ripped the group apart victoria can't trust any of them anymore she she can't trust sveta she's worried about natalie she still feels like she can't trust byron either and and like there's so much tension in the scene nobody like there's there's very little trust about any of these people sveta knows something's going on with byron and considering victoria was just with him she's now worried about victoria too to me things are so tense and so heightened that sveta is just flat out like struggling to maintain control of her body yeah i think that actually is a better interpretation i think like my on my first read through i i thought it was shard related and then when you actually see the nature of the scene it's clear that Sveta just is actually on edge. Yeah. So. Yeah. You have this mo- moment where she says it sucks that she could accept the hand waggle, but she gave me a look with doubt in her eyes when she didn't think I was paying attention. And I don't think we can under s- understate the meaning of the rift between these two characters. Right. And I know that this is like all caused by goddesses manipulation, but Victoria and Sveta were like the two people out of everyone on the team that were closest. Right. Victoria knew Sveta always had her back. She was the first person she told about the wretch. She could she wasn't even capable of telling anyone else in the group, but she could talk to Sveta about it. And now that relationship has been is like temporarily a victim of goddesses bullshit. And and it makes it like makes it tense, but it also makes it kind of devastating. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because, you know, they're this network of 
of teammates and friends that she's put together, particularly Sveta, are kind of, I don't know, I don't want to be dramatic here, but almost all she has in terms of human connection. Yeah. And um, I think we've maybe even underemphasized how important Sveta is to her in particular because this is the one person who she can go to and, and actually expect to relate to her about some of these issues. Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely is is bad to have this relationship tampered with. So Lookout is able to do a lot of quick tinkering on the box that they brought her, um, and she's able to answer a lot of questions. So she can't get it to teleport, but she can turn it into a camera, <laughs> um, which she uses to see the target locations for teacher's teleporters. And this is then seemingly superimposed with video feeds from the cameras that Kenzie has already hacked, so they can actually watch the pharmacist deliver her payload into the prison. Um, but the drugs are apparently an orange powder. It's pumpkin spice season. Pumpkin spice pills. Is is it yet? Yeah, man. Pumpkin spice lattes. Oh, They're out. Let's go oh, get man. one. Oh man, that's um, great. So, <laughs> the actual question here, Matt, is what the hell is is teacher planning? So they're they're smuggling drugs in and putting them in circulation. Um, so before we move on with the rest of the chapter, what do you think? What do you think his play is with these drugs? Um, it could be it could be as simple as he's going to sedate everyone so that when he moves in, he um, can just do whatever he wants. Uh, it could be like, um, honestly, my first thought was we we know of one biotinker who's been repeatedly named in this story. Um, I'm not thinking of Bonesaw. I'm thinking of. Um, yep. Predict uh, what? It's the, the one who was in. Um, it, it, the the one the one who was in um um oh my god you doing okay hollow point the hollow point biotinker with the pills bitter pill bitter pill okay <laughs> bitter pill we've got pills bitter pill pills bitter pill you did it um, I'm so proud so, of you so yeah so that was my thought was maybe the, the, my to condense this rambling I'm not going to cut any of this this is Please all don't. staying in no this is great. I think it could potentially be some kind of tinker pill mind control. I, or it could just be a sedation. I don't know. I, I, I was kind of going towards a, a fun kind of tinker pill mind control thing, too. Like he's he's so heavily included all these people that are capable of doing things with mind control. It would be cool to see that tech combined with a kind of bio tinker thing. That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, I, I think that's great. Yeah. We'll see. So they confirm uh, that one of the security guards is also compromised because they note that he ignores the pharmacist's intrusion. Yeah, and and so everything starts clicking into place at this moment, right? Like they're realizing that this one guy who's been compromised is leading to other members that have been compromised and like the whole thing is appearing before them. And in this moment, Natalie pops in and says, Victoria, can I can I talk with you? And she's so mad about it. Right fucking yeah. now? The dominoes are falling. We're getting a sense of what we're fighting here. Can you give me a minute? I, I'm kind of freaking out. <laughs> and I think the genius of this and the genius of why Natalie is kind of the MVP of the chapter to me is this whole time, Victoria has been kind of very closely paying attention to what Natalie is doing because she's worried about what she's going to do. So we see throughout this entire chapter, Natalie is becoming like increasingly more agitated. Like she's fidgeting. She's like, like 
pacing and like like kind of rocking back and forth while standing like she's so uncomfortable and they're just continually making these plans around the prison which are not strictly legal and and like we said before this is evidence to me of her being like reduced to her former role now that they just don't mm-hmm. care about her anymore yeah right we're not exactly sure what she what happened before uh victoria got here but it seems like yeah, she's she's just very uncomfortable with it and now, now feels like she uh, is not part of the group. Yeah. So, so Victoria comes up with a plan uh, to close off the prison dimension before a teacher can do the same, locking him out and thus foiling his, his plans. Lookout says she can do it, but they'll need to do it soon before the medication is, is dispensed since they infer the teacher's attack will fall around then. But just... Does this mean the friends are going to be stuck in there? What, Matt, what is this plan? Yeah, I, I don't know. It didn't seem there didn't seem to be to like an implication that it was going to be a permanent shutting um, necessarily or m- maybe. I, yeah, I guess presumably if if Lookout can shut it, she can open it. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get the sense. You'd think someone would have mentioned it if it was going to be like, yeah, we're going to lock our friends away forever. Yeah. But I do think we're supposed to think this is Victoria being rather hasty with her plan forming. And I think I think Wildwood does that in clever ways because Natalie's response to this is this sounds like a thing your mom would say. Mm-hmm. And and Victoria's response is it very much is if we're running with cash, if if they're running with cash in hand, take that cash. At best, we can do that. We force a draw. Teacher wants to lock off an area and loot it. We beat him to the punch and close it off first. So, like, she's basically saying, you're acting like your mother. And Victoria's response is, damn straight. Yeah, right. Like, she doesn't have a negative reaction to that at all. She's like, yep. And I, I don't know. To me, that feels like the book saying, this seems rash, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's, it, that doesn't sound like a Victoria plan. doesn't sound like a warrior monk plan. Yeah. And it does seem like the kind of thing where you're just like, well, that could work. Yeah. I mean, it seems like also, the, the problem with the plan is that it's operating off of a lack of understanding of what teacher's actual goal is. Yeah. Well, and also a lack of understanding of his capabilities right. because he is like we know that he's someone who thinks about contingencies. I'm pretty sure he like went on a whole villain monologue about contingencies <laughs> yeah. and like the, the concept of thinking th- thinking things through yeah. and preparing for contingencies. So like yeah, maybe maybe he didn't think of this. Maybe he did and he'll just like immediately undo whatever you do. So And that he also specifically knows Lookout's capability in the prison, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like we had that whole end of that uh interlude that says we we figured out that someone hacked into the prison and we're going to deal with it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me as very uh, likely that he has planned for her interference in somehow it's yeah. in some way. I, I don't know what it is, but yeah, it I'm I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried. Yeah, I'm worried about this, yeah. this off the cuff plan that they're implementing against like a, a, a global level mastermind. Yeah. Yep, so they determine that they'll need to tap other sources for help in all this, and all of Goddess's little helpers are on the same page about who to call. <laughs> what a moment, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's Sveta and Victoria at the same moment say Goddess, and then <laughs> yeah. hilariously, Kenzie is like a moment yeah. later. Goddess? Yeah. yeah. It's such an ominous way to end the chapter. Like, of course they're going to go to Goddess for help. And so it's like, yeah. it's... Uh, 
it's just things stacking one on top of the, the other, right? There's so many things. We talked about this at the very start of the episode. There's so many conflicts and things going on right now, and they're all compounding upon each other, and it's, it's bad. We're moving. It feels like we're moving into the third act of this arc with this. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. We might have like one more chapter where like they're dealing with uh, they they meet with goddess and talk about stuff. But it, it feels like uh, we're rising the action. Yes. Yes. I feel the action rising as well. <laughs> um, all right. So that wraps up uh, chapter 9.6 of Arc 9 Gleaming. All right. Talk um, to me about some names, Matt. Let's, let's do some names. So I, I put this one here and I still don't know what to say about it, but I'm just going to volley it over to you uh barcode the group of assassins that's not fair when you put names in the name game i assume you have something to say about them i i don't no <laughs> no, no i don't i mean it, yeah like th- this is one where i was just like wow i i mean l- let's see bought l- like like it could be that they're they're ex- there's an implication they're ex-criminals so it's like the barcode could be like cell bars like and they follow a code of their own code of ethics they seem to have rules yeah um that's perhaps a stretch or they all just have um, barcodes tattooed on them perhaps they have barcodes tattooed on them due to having been criminals i also had like a fleeting thought of like okay well they're like selling organs so maybe there's just something to do with like black market stuff yeah sales I barcode like yeah i don't know like yeah I, I had i had a whole lot of uh, it's not that i had zero thoughts it's that i had zero good thoughts so that's fair yeah. Well, I think I think what we'll do with this one is we're going to put a pin in it. Yeah. And we're just going to remember it. And if we have any other ideas of it, we'll bring it. We'll bring it back around. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. See, the, the, the reason I brought it out here was that I feel like very often I don't bring out the names the first time they show up because I don't have anything to say about them. And then I don't bring them up later times because I feel like they're not new anymore. So I'm going to just bring it up. Even though it's not new, okay. I mean, even though it is new, and I don't have anything to say about it. Anyway, that's next, that's the, fine. So one of so next thing, one of our uh, uh, patron and friend of the pod, Stephen, uh, pointed out the use of the word waggle when it comes to like Victoria waggling, um, um, Sveta's hand, and this is something that's been like pretty consistently the word that's been used throughout the story, actually. Yeah, and. They just pointed out that, yeah, like th- this is a great word. It has these like playful connotations. Um, it also manages to capture the fact that Victoria is aware of and comfortable with the nature of Sveta's body because she does this waggle thing because it's the only way to get Sveta to actually feel what she's doing, you know. And I, I, I hadn't really noticed, actually, that that was a word that was being consistently used that way, but it absolutely is. It's it's a it's. It's her main way of like reassuring Sveta. Yeah, I, I noticed it, but I never really like stopped to think about it. Um, and and yet it is it is a very unique word between the two of them. It is a, a unique to describing their interaction. And um, I, like like we were talking about, they have a very unique relationship. So using this very unique word to describe their unique relationship, I think is very fitting. And I, I was yeah. appreciative of was Stephen, you said of, yeah. of pointing that out. Yeah. And then there was one, you know, speaking of names that uh, I, I don't think I gave due analysis when they first came up, but there was Azur, which was explained as being like, oh, you see, it's like AU for the atomic symbol for gold. And then the word Azure, which is blue. And it's like at the time we were like, OK, they aren't very good at naming themselves. <laughs> but 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 now, like 
we know that gold is like the first symbol introduced in the story and we we've come to see blue as me as being its own symbol so azure then becomes like blue and gold which are now these two very kind of meaningful broadly applicable symbols in the story i don't know what to make of the fact that their team name is potentially you know a reference to these symbolic colors but uh, i don't know but i like it i'm glad you pulled that out jumped out to me as soon as i kind of went back and made that connection yeah so let's pay attention to this team because we know that they're assholes yeah that's and we know from the color scheme too (laughs) so all right discussion question so here, here it is pick an element from the prologue glowworm and discuss how it has either paid off in the story or hasn't yet and remains open to interpretation um, so basically with this question, I was trying to capture the idea that like this whole conflict between Tristan and Byron was actually set up in the prologue, but we didn't know what the hell was going on. It was just yeah. very, very like fascinating mystery in the prologue. And, and now it's largely paid off. There, there may still be some quirks that haven't quite unrolled yet, um, but there's, there's lots of stuff in the prologue. A lot of it hasn't paid off yet. A lot of it has been hinted at in the story, but not actually paid off fully. So I would love to kind of, now that we're nine arcs, nine and a half arcs or whatever into the story, I would love to kind of revisit the prologue, think about what was what was in there that we didn't notice that has now been revealed and what is potentially in there that, that hasn't been revealed yet. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, please write some more novellas for us. <laughs> yes, we'll look forward to that. Yeah. We love that. And uh, that's... All we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at wrong. <laughs> yeah. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And you can find this and all the other podcasts we do over at doofmedia.com. This week on our other shows, we got some good ones for you. Uh, Vow to View hits on Thursday talking about some of our favorite teen TV shows. It's going to be... I've recorded the first half of that, so I know how it's going to be. Spoilers. My wife is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> then, I don't know if that's a spoiler. Yeah. Then over on the Doofcast, um, which is coming out this Friday, we're going to be doing part two of our Wachowski marathon. We're talking about The Matrix, a movie that no one has ever talked about on the Internet before. Yeah, we got some really fresh takes. Yeah, but if you haven't given these two shows a try yet, please do. Um, if you like this, you'll you'll probably like those, too. I, I promise I'm not like biased at all. I'm, I'm super authentic. B- believe me, I'm on the Internet. Yeah, that's right, Scott. And uh, if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and costume contests, uh, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks to new patrons uh, at the $1 level, Arena Nevera, Arena Venera, Arena Venera, the palindrome, Steve uh, Silken Stew, 
and at the $3 level, Niels. And as always, uh, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbo, and donate to him as well. This is his world, and we are just playing in it. Now, you didn't say what the $1 level is called. Oh, it's called Bidoof. I just wanted I just wanted you to say it. Which I believe is a Pokemon or something. What do you mean, or something? Yes, it's a Pokemon. Stop pretending like you don't know nerd things. <laughs> and if you can't afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review. This week's review comes from Victoria Take Me Shopping, which gives who gives us five stars and says, I binged the entirety of We've Got Worm during an extremely boring and repetitive lab work, and it just about saved my sanity. We've Got Ward continues to make the experience of reading the Parahumans universe even more fun and is a serviceable replacement for humans in real life to discuss the book with. Excellent banter between the two hosts, and I also enjoy Scott and Matt highlighting the dissection and dissecting literary techniques. I feel real smart when I too pick up on them while reading Ward. Good. You should feel real smart. Yeah. Thank you so much. I hope you um didn't get like didn't do bad lab work. <laughs> Maybe you didn't like blow up a lab. This this makes me so happy because it makes me feel like we're actually like part of this dialogue across space and time. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Alright, that's all for this week. We'll see you right here next week for chapters 7 and 8 of Arc 9 Gleaming. Bye-bye. Bitter pill, Matt. You remember bitter pill?